I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This time our year is 1910, and our book is the poet Rilke's novel, The Notebooks of Malta Laurids Brigge. I'll be speaking with the poet and essayist Elisa Gabbert, who has been on many episodes here before. Um, and for the first time, we have Michael Joseph Walsh, um, who's also a poet. His book of poetry, Innocence, came out in 2022. His poems and reviews and uh, translations from the Korean have appeared in so many places. I'll let you look at the show notes for the full list. He's everywhere. He's wonderful. Um, as a summary of the novel, um, I'm out of the game. Uh, this might be the hardest part of the whole podcast gig. Uh, <laughs> like, hmm, like all the books we ever talk about here, this book resists summary, but it might be worse than most because um, it's just a notebook, but it's fictional. Uh, it's the notebook of a fictional person. It's supposedly the notes of a young man living in Paris as he thinks about his childhood and his observations of the city around him and just life. Um, it feels like it would have to be close to Rilke's own life, and it is, but is also not at all in ways that we will discuss in our conversation. Elisa, <laughs> I'm going to start by by speaking to you, even though, hi Mike, I'm really happy you're here too. You said that one of the stories that I apparently tell you more often than once or twice is that when I was in high school, I named my goldfish after this book. I named it Malta after this book. No, you, yeah, you well, yeah, you told me once and like, that's an unforgettable detail. <laughs> So then the second time you told me, I was like, you think I would forget that you named your goldfish Malta? Okay, okay, okay. So that means that I don't repeat myself terribly much, tell you the story over and over. So that's good. Um, I obviously reread this book because you were reading it. And it was interesting preparing for this podcast to try to think about it in the context of time. Because when I first read it and connected to it and to Rilke's work in general, I didn't know enough, you know, I was a teenager, I didn't know enough to encounter him in time. So in a way, it's like, like, revisiting his work and thinking, oh, this was published in a specific year, it was published in 1910. Um, it's, um, it's like finding out that your childhood doll or something like your imagination comes from a specific time and place. I, I felt like reading this book as an adult was like reading um, my journal or something. It felt so personal and so connected um, and almost alarming to see it all written out like that in a place that anyone could read just sitting on a show. <laughs> and I think that from what you were saying about it, that was sort of your reaction to reading it also. Oh God. Is that right? Yeah, I well, first of all, I'm I'm so curious. Um, and maybe we can just circle back to this if I talk for a minute. But I'm so curious how you found this book when you were young, because like I love Rilke and I have, you know, been reading his poetry for like 20 years, um, which doesn't feel like actually a big enough portion of my life I like I should have been reading it earlier but I didn't really um I didn't really start to have a relationship 
to Rilke or with Rilke until my 20s. Um, and I've just like, you know, loved him more and more the older I've gotten. Um, but I didn't even know that he wrote a novel until like sort of semi-recently. Um, and it was this this happens frequently in my life that a, suddenly a book will like come into my consciousness and I'll mention it to John and he'll like go to our shelves and pull it off the shelf. <laughs> so like it turned out this novel I didn't know existed was already on our shelf. Um, so it must have been <laughs> seeping in subliminally somehow. Um, but yeah, he 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 hadn't read it. He had just bought it at some point. He's he's a very um he's a very good library builder that way. He just seems to have a sense for what books we might want in our future at some point. Um, and so I read it for the first time um about a year and a half ago, and I just absolutely was swept away and loved it. And one of the things that I love so much about it, which is what I think connects to that feeling you're talking about is this, this kind of a framework of going back into your childhood from an adult perspective. And that this feels very Proustian to me, the way that um, Rilke, and I, th I think this, it, it's, it's fair to say that it's autobiographical, almost autofictional. Yes. Um, the way that, Rilke and Proust both kind of go back to their childhood self and and never in a like a condescending way where they're sort of like making fun of the younger self. <laughs> like what I find so moving yeah. about it is that it's like the sympathy is so true and pure. <laughs> like he has just like complete credence for his, you know, like on the face of it, irrational childhood fears, um, like impulses, misunderstandings, the great mysteries of life as they seem to him as a child, it's like this adult narrator still thinks that they're just that scary and just that mysterious. Um, and that, yeah, I, I think that's, that's what feels so utterly personal about it is that like his, that young self still is so, um, is taken so seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is, it's just, it's really fully inhabited when he does, inhabit it right yeah there's no like rye looking back at yourself as a child like how how silly was i he's sort of able to um in a way that uh is hard to pull off but um obviously Rilke can pull that off and and lots of other things as well but he's sort of like able to fully occupy the consciousness of a child and you know i think and as you i think alluded to like feel all of those fears and sort of relay them um, in a way that, you know, for the person reading it kind of brings you back to those memories, whatever corresponding memories you might also have um, in just a, I don't know, like a, in a really visceral and impactful way. It, it's just impressive, like how he's able to time travel in that way. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, I have these um, sort of uh, episodic memories of again and again it's not narrated as uh Rilke's autobiography autobiography obviously um but it's not just a matter of I have these episodic memories of these things that happened to me in childhood it's um here is like actually how this was experienced from the perspective of the child and all of its sort of uh grandeur and terror um yeah and I think those those scenes are amazing yeah the the way that he just drops you into those memories as though like it's like dropping into a room or a cave it's just completely 
immersive in that way. I find so moving. And as I was like flipping through this book again today, um, just kind of rereading some of my favorite passages, I was amazed how close together they often were. <laughs> like this book is just like amazing passage after amazing passage with no connective tissue. And so I would I would find like, oh, I really, I really want to reread that part where he's talking about his father's funeral. And then I want to read the part where you know, he's a kid and he's in the attic with his cousin or whatnot, and they're looking for the ghost. Um, yeah. And they would end up being like right next to each other, yeah. like on subsequent pages. And I just couldn't believe that those completely different scenes that were so striking and memorable to me were just right, like abutted together. I had the same thing. I have, I have various bookmarks that I ended up folding. So, cause I wanted to mark two pages that were right up against each other. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say about, so, okay, this is, this is one thing about the childhood consciousness um, that we talked about in another episode of this, the uh, Philip Pullman episode of this um, podcast, that, um, that everyone has two completely independent, in a way, experiences of consciousness, of like a childhood consciousness and an adulthood consciousness, and we know they're different, but we don't know exactly how they're different. And I think that just his sort of open-ended exploration of that question from a perspective of complete seriousness that suggests that maybe it isn't even just two consciousnesses, maybe it's it's many, you know, that um, the way that he puts his different minds kind of alongside each other like that, um, it's like a children's book in that it takes the idea of childhood consciousness incredibly seriously. But one of the things about putting it into history that for me for this reading is um, thinking about um, that. So his, his mentor girlfriend, Lou yes. uh, Andreas Salome, right? Is that her name? Am I getting it right? God, thank you. Um, <laughs> I might cut that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, anyway, so she's a psychoanalyst. And the, the question of like Freudian analysis of childhood experiences as a way to solve your adult problems is everywhere. And it's, it, it's like everywhere in society when he's writing this. And it's something that he's wrestling with, whether he will undergo analysis or not, whether it will help his problems. And I think that thinking of this book as in conversation with Freudian therapy or, you know, psychoanalysis is something that I hadn't considered when I was, you know, reading it first, because I don't think that this book would accept the idea that the childhood experiences are sort of uh, a problem to be solved by the adult even though there's there's links between yeah yeah it seems like a like a straightforward rejection of that idea almost yeah it's like um i mean weird stuff happens like you know there's all the stuff and this was this was true for for rilke's life also that his mom uh dressed him up as a daughter and asked him to go by a female name and and have a like a a female persona to be her daughter um 
and that that was sort of a game that they play, but also, and I don't think this is in the book, but it is in Rilke's life, that the mother had a daughter who only lived maybe a week or two, um, and before she had her son, who she named Renee, and he only went by Rainer um, as an adult. That he changed his name to something less girlish, but he kept the at the, at the prompting of um, Salome. Yes, yes. She you changed your name to Reiner. Exactly. Yeah. She was like, you "Call yourself something a little bit more uh, manly," and um, and more German. Uh, anyway, I think that if he were of a Freudian turn of mind, he could um, do a lot with that. <laughs> He seems but a bit too doesn't. romantic for that. I mean, he's, it, um, and uh, I think uh, it is interesting to look, read the book through the lens of Freudianism, but um, I mean, given when it came out, it really is kind of at the confluence of um, a whole bunch of different things. I mean, um, in terms of like em- emerging um, modernism, I mean, the first half of the book to me was extremely um, reminiscent of Baudelaire. It seemed like a very, sort of, um, you yes. know, a flaneur kind of, uh, kind of novel. And there were um, just passages of, um, especially in the first half, um, that just reminded me so much of um, Paris Spleen specifically. Um, and then once I got, you know, you only have to get like 50 pages into the book when he actually um, quotes from Paris Spleen. There's just a whole paragraph from Paris Spleen um, in a part of the notebook that is, book turns into a commonplace book for a few pages um so that was interesting to track and 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 also um for similar reasons and this is just part of the same confluence or nexus it reminded me um a bit of poe uh part some of those some of those early scenes in paris reminded me of uh mm-hmm. the man of the crowd um which um you know makes a lot of sense since um baudelaire um translated poe and um, it's likely that that's probably, that's probably how, uh, assuming Rilke read Poe, which I would assume he did, he probably read it in Baudelaire's translation. So, um, at least the first half of the book seemed very like of its time in that way from a kind of literary perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking also that, um, his understanding of like what it means to be in a city and to be kind of grossed out by being in a city. Um, like, I think on the one hand, cities were actually much grosser and more scary then than they are now. But mm-hmm. I also, um, like there's something about it, those like uh, Little Shop of Horrors, how um, in that m- musical, the idea of moving to the suburbs is like, all right, now you're living real life like you have, you're not in like this purgatory anymore of having to um, live in the city. And it um, there's like a lot of art that takes cities that way. And in some ways, I think that it's justified in this case. And in some ways, it feels almost like he's, um, he's just taking Baudelaire's word for it. Like, it's like, yes, this is his experience of the city, but his experience of living in the countryside is also um, 
I think he's the same person there. You know? Like, I don't think that his feelings of being, like, both horrified and sort of overwhelmed by empathy are um, because he's in the city. Mm. I think yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the sort of impulse to go to the city in this novel um, to experience reality reminds me of um, the sort of, you know, opposite journey in Two Serious Ladies where... (laughs) Yes. Um, where the woman yes. like <laughs> goes to Long Island just, just to sort of like put herself to the fire, you know, like it, it, this sort of like none like I must expose myself to just sin and iniquity to make to test my own faith in a way. And so she starts living this just like whorish lifestyle where people actually think she's a whore um, just because she like wanders the streets at night and um but yeah it's just it's that kind of impulse of like oh like because like the city is disgusting and i'm exposed to horrors all the time and i can hear the people in the next apartment and it like makes me sick it's like this is this is reality and to bring up baudelaire again you know he quotes from that baudelaire poem which hold on, actually let me read the exact but no in the end of this mitchell translation because i like it um hold on where is it it's a great description of that baudelaire poem Page page two sixty two is the note with the translation of the. Wait, why am I not seeing this two sixty two? No, it's it's so it's from it's not from that poem. It's oh, it's oh, the next page though. Oh yeah, so oh, um, Sharon, yeah. Oh, yeah, the corpse. The, the poem describes a putrid, maggot-eaten animal carcass. <laughs> and it doesn't do that. I checked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's that like, you know putridity of the city that it's like it's almost the sick attraction for him you know and that um that that is that is real life uh not you know not the pristine clean country but like the horror of the city that kind of um jack the ripper stuff um yeah but we also know that he you know he went to the countryside to get a house and marry his wife and have a child because he thought that that would make him feel like a real person. And then he was like, Oh, this is awful. This isn't, this isn't good for my poetry at all. And left after like, just like a couple of months after his daughter was born. Um, And I think that that's one of the things that's interesting about the, um, the way that he's describing the city and how, how much it's sort of tugging at his his heartstrings and his like feelings of decency and whatever um is that that's the feeling he wants you know like he doesn't um he isn't able to to do the thing that people would normally do if they are worried about harm to people which is to like look after their wife and child you know like look after their loved ones to think like, oh, it's horrible when people suffer, when people die in, you know, disgusting, dirty hospitals in the city. Um, so I will do my best to make sure that doesn't happen to the people immediately around me. That that's not the direction that that empathy takes him. Um, it's toward, like you, like you said about the two serious ladies, it's toward sort of dangling himself into the fiery pit, whatever he perceives the fiery pit as being. Um, 
even though that that's actually harming the people that he ostensibly loves. I think that that's one of the things about this, this book that it feels really modern because as the 20th century keeps going, there's going to be so many people who are exiled from the circumstances of their youth. And there's so many people who are going to be witnessing horrors and who will feel changed by them. But it feels like he's choosing it and he's choosing it for personal reasons. Like it's not something that's really on the surface. There's something profound about the exact person he is that he's not able to, um, you know, protect anyone in a reasonable way from having a bad life. That, that this is the way that empathy feels for him is that he would rather um, see a man having a seizure and, and uh, try to pretend that he's also tripping on the same bit of sidewalk later, that that's like, um, so, so he's like theoretically protecting this man's dignity, but it, I'm certain that that's not a useful way of making that man's life better. You know, <laughs> there's this line. Um, there's this line toward the end that I love, um, where it's where he where he writes, "All men attempted both the thing and its opposite. All men canceled themselves out. There was no such thing as action," which feels like the exact opposite of "You must change your life." Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's like what you're saying. Oh, he had to get married and move to the country, but then he also had to, you know, to leave his wife and move to the city. So um, it's like he you know, both rails against this impulse, but, you know, feels that it is like the only true impulse. Well, what, what, one thing this makes me think of actually, though, so I think um, that reading um, makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, especially if um, the more we imagine that Malta Lord's Briga like is Rilke or is, or is a very thinly disguised Rilke, um, but, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that in the novel, unless I have forgotten, you know, Malta Lord's Briga is not, you know, he hasn't uh, married and had a daughter and then decided that he can't stand living in the country anymore. And so he decided to move to France. Um, right. The, those are sort of um, details that we we know about Rilke and we know that, you know, a, a lot of the at least the specific details that end up in the book are autobiographical. Um, but as I was going through and, and especially after reading the book and after and like going back and like reviewing, you know, the Wikipedia page for, you know, for Rilke's biography, um, I, I came away thinking that, um, again, I think a lot of the like specific details are like clearly drawn from Rilke's life. But a lot of the sort of framework and what narrative scaffolding there is is sort of seems sort of highly fictionalized in some respects um you know the the all like especially all of those childhood scenes at the estate um with the danish name that i can't recall or pronounce um you know as far as i know rilke lived under no such circumstances um and 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 a lot of those scenes are really wonderful and, and also include these really striking like um magical realist elements so there's the the ghost of christine braha who you know visits them at the dinner table 
um, uh, several times. There is the, um, and uh, there's the the uncle who he like suspects is like you know conducting uh, weird experiments on corpses or something. There's the Count Braha who's this clairvoyant who's uh, um, uh, constantly like predicting how people's lives will go um, and things of that sort. Um, and I know when I and when I read it the first time again, I hadn't gone through and corroborated all those details. I remember thinking like, oh, I wonder if Rilke has some kind of Scandinavian connection or something. I mean, this is a clearly a Scandinavian setting. Um, and that turns out not to be the case for him personally, but I think he drew it from his reading. Um, so I, so to me, I think that's an interesting thing to think about and or something that whenever I go back to read this again, which I definitely will, um, just something to, you know, for me that I'd be interested in sort of tracking in more detail. Um, I, I, so, so I just think it's easy to slip into thinking like, oh, this is like a totally autobiographical thing. And I think at its core, it certainly is. But then I go back and I think about these other scenes. And I'm like, well, I, that doesn't seem very autobiographical. No, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we're talking about the form. Um, it's, it's not here. I think what is sort of so incredible about this novel to me is that, I mean, there's no way you could possibly read it as autobiographical, even if you wanted to, because it's like, it's not that kind of novel, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, like, of course, there's characters and the characters have um, names that are, you know, like everything made up. Um, but it's it's more like there's no there's no way you could transpose this onto anyone's life because there's no um, there's no real narrative. It's like it's a so it's a fictional notebook. There's a German word for for fictional notebooks, which um, escaping me at this moment. But I did I I had a feeling that they must have a word for that because they have so many great little you know specific words for different kinds of fiction and they do Hang but on, i forgot Elisa, what it is i have um, um i have it here because i have the thing you wrote about it on my computer ooh. here sorry just give me oh, two perfect. seconds i'll find it <laughs> wait but you know you actually know how, how to pronounce german mike because i don't really uh, i mean not re i mean i can approximate it it'll be it'll be wrong but it sounds like tagbuch roman or something that yes Yes, that's, you're right. Like Tog, like Gutentag, right? Like it's so a day book. Day yeah, book, day book day um, yeah. So, other, so yeah, I think you know, topic um, literature that there's like there's <laughs> there's definitely a word for just like all literature that's based on notebooks. But then there's the specific one for a novel in the form of a notebook. Um, so much more specific than I think. You know, in English we would call it an epistolary novel, which I found very unsatisfying because to me, epistolary should signify epistles, letters, you know, not like Pamela, right? Like a novel in the form of letters. I would love something more specific. Of course, the Germans have it. Um, but so it's, I love that, like, you know, it, it starts with this clear notebook-esque framework where there's a date and there's a place. And of course, it's the place where he actually lived when he was trying to write about um, Rodin. But then, like, that's the only date in the novel. Like, he just, he abandons that framework, <laughs> except for the fact that, like, it's in these passages, which, again, I, I'm just, I'm very, I'm very keen on describing this as, like, a passage-driven novel versus, like, a character-driven novel or a plot-driven novel. Like, what's important is the, the passage, <laughs> the passage as a unit. And so he created this form, which would allow him 
um, him, Rilke, the author, to like write anything he wanted. This is sort of the dream of modernism, right? Like anything of life that he wanted to put into his novel, he could do using the rubric of a notebook because a notebook can contain anything. It, contain, it can contain passages that are like fiction. It can contain passages that are more like memoir. Um, it can contain dreams. It can contain letters. And I, I know that there are passages in this novel that were letters that Rilke wrote to real people in his life and then he put into the novel. So it just became this um, this form that he could, this vessel that he could pour anything into. Um, but I, I, you know, if you haven't read it, I, I think that might make it sound like, oh, it's it doesn't feel very fictional, but it does. And so I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you said that, Mike. Like it does to me feel like a novel. It just feels to me like passages are often the things that I remember most about novels. You know, I'll I'll read a novel and five years later, the only thing I will remember is one particular passage. And this novel is just made up of those kinds of passages that you remember divorced from the plot except this novel has no actual plot underlying the passages right yeah the notebook form just creates a framework it's a framework for him to kind of collect set pieces which is why maybe for me that just feels like such a banger because he can just put in all of his best set pieces and he doesn't need um a lot of interstitial narrative framework to get from set piece to set piece you can just you know, get to the end of one and jump to the next. And because everything is unified by, um, at least by the character such as as it is of Malta Lords Briga, but also just the overall voice and sensibility, um, even though it's sort of jumping from set piece to set piece, it still feels um, oddly seamless. I was thinking about this earlier today. I was like, it's a, it's really weird how seamless the novel feels to me. Like, even though he's jumping from thing to thing, it, every transition feels very natural, um, in some kind of intuitive way. Um, but at the same time, again, part, part, part of the reason why we've all had the experience of, you know, highlighting a passage and thinking like, wow, I can't wait to come back to that. And then reading the next paragraph back, like, oh, that one's just as good as well. Oh, uh-huh. no. And the next paragraph is just as good. Um, uh, that sort of like density of good passages or memorable passages or passages with, um, and maybe this is what we're identifying with, like the kind of like poetic intensity you associate with Rilke, he's able to just put them all in without anything in between. Yes. And like, I think that creates an illusion that there are no section breaks like in my memory there were way fewer section breaks than there are um which you know of course those are clearly meant to designate like entries in the notebooks but i just forgot about them because they just bleed into each other so fluidly yeah i think that the the thing that is not fictional about it is not the um it's not the events exactly it's the quality of consciousness where I don't think that anybody mm-hmm. could invent this particular quality of consciousness if they didn't also have it because he just notices and is aware <laughs> of a certain kind of thing that seems just like, um, like he wouldn't even know to invent something like um the girls wearing dresses at Easter that are actually summer dresses, but they just can't wait to wear 
you know, which I was like, I took a note about that. Like, how does he know about that? You know, like wearing clothes that are actually too, that are not like the weather isn't warm enough for you to actually wear a summer dress at Easter, but you are so excited about your summer dress that you want to wear it. Um, It's the kind of thing that, that he couldn't write if he didn't notice it, you know, like if it weren't interesting to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's that. Yeah. And I, 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 along those lines, I tend to think that like when novelists write about intense childhood feelings, um, those are often real childhood feelings because um those are, you know, those are the kinds of intense memories that haunt you for the rest of your life. And like what I what I love about the sort of young Malta character in this novel, I mean, one of the things I love about him, I just, you know, I just, I really want to like hug him. He's yeah. so sweet. <laughs> I love when he says like the first time he found a mask, he immediately understood that masks should exist. I about that too. <laughs> I love that so much. Um <laughs> Um, I I am like obsessed with the way young Malta seems to have an awareness of the adult Malta inside of him, right? Like, you know, there's that passage in the beginning where it's about how like your death is inside you all your life and everybody has their own death and it's like utterly personal. You know, those are like part of your personal settings. Um, the, (laughs) The child like seems to have an awareness of the adult Malta inside him, like waiting for him um like his his memory just sort of projects forward that way like it's all it's all just in there in a tendril that will eventually unwind um and you know of course like the adult malta could be projecting that backward because we're getting this through the point of view of the adult malta but it feels an authentic memory um that you know that the and that felt really true. And I thought that the the scene that is very near the scene with the mask where he's trying on, I think it's a uniform. And he's, he says like that there are gestures that are inside the clothing, that if you're wearing this clothing, your body sort of meets it halfway and becomes the body that would wear this clothing mm-hmm. with gestures. I I was thinking that, that that is a way that a child becomes aware of their adult self. And he, when he's making these gestures, he's saying like, my hand is watching itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the sort of um, growth of self-consciousness as he puts on the clothing, it just seems incredibly true. You know, it's like, it must've been a personal memory for him uniquely, but it also seems like something that's actually more broadly true of how children become people. I think hands are so interesting and in this novel, but also just in, in Roca and in general, he writes about hands and a lot of his poems too. These hands is kind of like seats of the self, um, but also sort of uncanny. Yeah. Um, and Rhoda has a lot of hand sculptures too. When the connection with um, hands and the uncanny is interesting. Um, I think Elisa knows about this. You've probably written about it at some point, but you know, the the one test they use, and I'm not sure what they're, and it's just a psychological test just to see if it'll work, I think. Um, but it's like the most inherently uncanny thing imaginable where they have you seated at a desk and they have like a, 
a, a prosthetic hand placed on the desk by where your right hand would be. And it's sort of like, you know, matched to, um, it's just where your right hand would be. And you sit there and stare at it for a while. I'm going to be getting the details of this experiment wrong, but they have found out that, uh, well, for one thing, if they, you know, strike it or make like they're going to hit it with a hammer, people will flinch. Um, but I think it can also be, um, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but if you, if you react to the test in a certain way, it can be diagnostic of certain sort of dissociative tendencies that you might have. And, and um, by, by giving you this sort of uncanny experience of, of a, of a disembodied hand. Um, and so that's, that's interesting. It just makes me think, I think there really is something to the idea of, um, you know, the hands as the, the seat of the self um, because the hands are um, obviously the main way through which we interface through the world, right? The hands are sort of the connection between ourselves and the world. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's funny how, you know, there's that expression or whatever, like I know what, what is it? The back of my hand. I know it as well as the back of my hand. Mm. Um, but like, I feel like we don't know our hands that well, you know, like we just, we just stop seeing them. I often notice my hands on a photograph or something and they feel slightly alien. Like, Oh, I didn't quite realize my hands look like that. Yeah, I think it can be, can be actually, uh, it can be uncanny to notice your hands too much, right? Like the 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 base yeah. state, to just um, it's just the way that you interact with the world and you just interact with the world without thinking about your hands as an intermediary. And I think if you become too conscious of your hands as an intermediary, that can be uh, creepy, for lack of a better term. Um, and I think I think Rilke does convey that with the the that the passage about the hand. <laughs> Oh, God, I love that one so much. I, I love that it starts as, you know, it refers to itself that way. It's like, oh, the story of the hand, like there's this label <laughs> in the character's mind all all his life. He's thought of it. Oh, yes. The, oh, the hand incident. Oh, yes. I guess I guess I'll tell it as though he's been telling it all his life. But then he says, like, oh, actually, this is the first time I've ever told this story. I, I once almost told it to my mother, <laughs> but he like lost his nerve. Um, and so it's like this notebook is the first time he's really telling this story that has been kind of looming on the tip of his tongue all this time. What is the name of the the disembodied hand character in the Adams family? <laughs> Wasn't it? No. No. No, that's the furry thing. Hang on, I'll look it up. <laughs> Our listeners need this. I know the hand has a name. The listeners will know before we do. But just uh, the fact... So Thing. It's called thing. Thing. Oh, yeah. Just the fact that thing exists, I think, um, is another good tie-in to sort of what we've been talking about with, <laughs> with hands at the seat of the self and and the sort of uncanny feeling you can have when, you know, either you feel disconnected from your hands or you become maybe overly conscious of your hands and and the and the sort of minute articulations of um what your hands are doing. Well, one of the first poems of Rokas that I was ever like really struck by was portrait of my father as a young man in which hands figure um, prominently. And it was also one of the first times where I really became conscious of like how differently poems could read in the hands of different translators. <laughs> and mm. it's, it's when I became a strong um, adherent to Stephen Mitchell, which I, know, I think you both read the Stephen Mitchell translation. Actually, I'm not sure, Catherine. Did you read the Stephen Mitchell translation? I listened to the Stephen Mitchell translation as an audiobook, and I read the um, I read the uh, Edward Snow one 
visually. Mm, okay. So, yeah. So just, um, I know that you have read the thing that I wrote about this, <laughs> but for people who haven't. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> so the la- the last couplet in this poem, and, the, and this is the version that I read for Stephen Mitchell translation. The last couplet is, oh, quickly disappearing photograph in my more slowly disappearing hand. And it's a, in a portrait of his father. So um, it's, you know, it's more poignant when you actually <laughs> read the whole poem. Um, but, and then the Edward Snow version is, oh, you swiftly fading daguerreotype in my more slowly fading hands. And like, if you read the German, I mean, daguerreotype is the word that's in the poem because that was the photographic technology that, you know, actually, <laughs> that, that that's what it was. Um, but so like you could argue, oh, that's more like loyal. That's a more authentic translation. Um, I don't know. I, I think a photograph feels more true in the sense that like if Rocco was writing the poem now, like he would use the language we use now, not the language of the time. Um, but it just feels like way more immediate, but also like more importantly, disappearing to me is like so much more Rilkean than fading, like, because the threat is more real, you know, it's like, and, and disappearance in this novel is, it, it really, <laughs> it really plays a role. You know, there's the hand that emerges from the wall and then disappears. There's the disappearing house. That's another passage that I reread today and was really struck by. I knew, I just, I love that. I love the connection between young Malta and his mother, the way they both feel like the house is sort of appearing and disappearing in this ghost-like fashion. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, I, I often feel like translators' choices are very personal. I know a lot of people like Snow, but I just, I'm like so fiercely loyal to to Mitchell. His choices always feel more poetic to me. Yeah, I'm a... Uh... Lisa and I talked about this um, a while ago, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a total Mitchell partisan now also. Uh, and part of my experience was just that I had, I hadn't, I never read this, but I had read Rilke's poetry years before. And I can't remember who the translator was there. There, you know, many people have done it. And I remember thinking it was really good. Um, but I just felt like this is really good. It must be really great in the German um, and, uh, I just felt like, well, I just can't access, um, I can't truly access whatever beauty is here. And that's too bad. Maybe someday I'll learn to read German. And I sort of moved on. Um, and then, uh, Elise and, and some friends were sort of having an argument about the relative merits of other poets. And Elisa was insistent that, you know, it doesn't get much better than Rilke. Um, and asked me about it. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know that. I can't tell because I don't, I haven't read the original. It must be amazing in German. Um, the translations that I've read haven't really done it for me. Um, and so uh, Elisa told me to read the Stephen Mitchells and I read all the poetry in Stephen Mitchell. And, um, you know, I can't articulate what it is exactly, but I just found it much more beautiful and compelling. And so for that reason, I, um, you know, waited like, you know, a month or something to get this uh, yeah, used version of the the Stephen Mitchell translation um but yeah and so i don't and i don't read german at all um and so you know i can't comment on the global quality of the translation but i do think that um you know a, a translator always has to do a certain kind of uh violence if you will to the original text there's just no way 
you know, there's no way not to betray the original text because um, your language is not the language of the original text and it can't do the same things, but it can do things that the um, source language cannot do. Uh, and so I don't know what particular violences Stephen Mitchell might be doing to the German. Um, but yeah, I just, I just on an aesthetic level, appreciate his particular choices. I just find it more beautiful and so it's the one I want to read more than the other ones. And I kind of don't care if, you know, it's less accurate in certain other respects. I think there's a sense in which I, um, there's a sense in which it is more accurate in being more beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, so just to use an example from the novels, very simple, three words, five words, tops, the phrase, everything is here, everything forever. Um, I read that in the Mitchell translation first. Love those sentences <laughs> and then I like you know I was, I was flipping you know comparing here and there to the snow because there's a new snow translation of this novel um or a new edition maybe he translated it earlier I don't know I don't know exactly but an, a newer translation came out recently by snow and this the snow version is everything is present which is like uh, technically technically here and present are the same same denotation but like everything is here is like so much larger to me you know I just, that, that that's the kind of choice that's like you're paying attention you're paying attention to the sensibility it feels like there's no way that Rilke sensibility if you spend time with this novel and with this poetry wouldn't be closer to the English sense of everything is here versus everything is present you know, like present is present and accounted for. That's an official word. Here is like a personal spiritual word. Um, but I also, I think the one thing that the the translations do is it does make it feel more um, timeless. And I think that, that that has to do with my, my reading it as if it was speaking directly to me when I was like 15 or 16. Um, and then feeling like it's kind of a surprise that it was actually published in a year, you know, that I think that the <laughs> translation serves that impression because it can have um, more, more immediacy in the word choice where, you know, English language poets from the same time might be using words like daguerreotype. Mm -hmm. Though I can't mm -hmm. think of any off the top of my head. Actually, the, the person that I wanted to um, compare this to is um, Virginia Woolf, because I think of Virginia Woolf as writing from a perspective, which is both her life circumstances, but also her consciousness um, that's so particular, but she's so specific and precise about her exact conscious experience that when I think of the set of years that she wrote about, like those, just those dates are like, oh yeah, Virginia Woolf dates. Um, and I, I feel that way about journals at the same time that I was reading this novel, actually, or really? around the same time. Yeah, so I, I had, she was often in my mind, yeah, um, when I was reading this. I think of Rilke's um, awareness and perception as being so specific and um that it, it makes it universal to the whole experience of being alive at that time which is a contradiction you know mm -hmm. 
She maybe I said this earlier, but she wrote about like a, a kind of similar aspiration or ambition in her notebooks about like wanting to find a form for the novel that would kind of feel like the way she felt her notebooks felt, um, like that kind of just very direct in, in the sense of like the emotion is so close to the surface and they're not overly worked over. They have like this this drafty feeling like they were just written, um, which which she did to my knowledge write a novel in the format of a notebook, but she, you know, she did try to innovate forms that would have that feeling. Um, which Roca landed upon, of course. It's interesting. That's interesting. Because I, I don't think that she ever went as far away from structure, structure as, mm-hmm. as Roca in this. But she also wrote a lot more of them. I mean, you could say maybe the waves. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, I, so I recently reread The Catcher in the Rye, which I hadn't read since I was a teenager. And it was a similar kind of, like that's about a a young, like a teenage character, but, but, but it's a book written by an adult. And I think that that's a book that you can read on two levels, which is like just just relating to the kid, or you can relate to the adult perspective on the kid, and they're both like very worthwhile reads. Like I, I really did like it just as much as an adult as I did <laughs> as a kid. Um, I like, I, like I, I just I wonder if this book happy. is like that. I think um, that was kind of how it took me this time. Yeah. And I think knowing that it took him like 10 years to write it is also part of that because it doesn't feel like it took someone 10 years. It feels like it took someone, you know, three months of writing down their best thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how it still feels like messy. Yeah, it, you know, like there's a, there are those strange gestures where it's like there's an asterisk and, you know, there will be like a footnote that says like, you know, written in the margin of the manuscript or something like yeah. that. <laughs> like, like a like a fake annotation as though these notebooks were actually discovered on a desert island or something. <laughs> yeah. It's also interestingly um, kind of lopsided in an interesting way. I mean, I just said it, it, the book still feels seamless, but like, you know, you get to the end of it. And I was thinking back to the second half of the book. Um, and I think, and I think this is interesting, and it, and it fits into the the notebook form, um, or you know, because if you do, if you keep a notebook, anyone who's kept a notebook for a long time, if the notebook is not a dedicated journal, I think you tend to change um, what you do with it over time, just like based on you know how your interests change or how your life changes, you might just start doing different things with the notebook. Um, and the the second half of the book, or maybe it's the second three quarters of the book, um, if I remember correctly, there's a part where the where Malta you know throws himself into reading, and then his reading kind of takes over the second half of the book. Right there, there's the an entire you know thirty pages uh, just sort of recounting the last days of uh, of Charles Charles the Bald. Um, and, and then there's um, the prodigal son at, at the, the end. The prodigal son. Yeah. yeah, and it, it's all sort of his consciousness, but it's sort of like he 
Um, he's just like lightly wearing these other masks, but the other masks are his reading and it sort of continues to be about him, but it's also just about Charles the Bald. Um, and, uh-huh. but it's also interesting just in terms of, you know, Rilke being um, um, amazing or just having this uh, impressive ability um, both to um, sort of occupy the consciousness of um, himself or for Malta to occupy the consciousness of young Malta as a child, but also um, for him to occupy the consciousness, you know, the imagined consciousnesses of these historical figures through his reading, right? And it's sort of like the same um, sort of uh, impulse or special power or something um, that's on display. Um, And so again, it all feels of a piece, it all feels seamless, but then you get to the end of the book and you think, wow, the last hundred pages were really um, just sort of, you know, Malta telling us about what he's been reading. Well, okay, hang on. I actually, I wanted to ask you both what you think about the final gesture, the prodigal son story. And then I wanted to say one other thing first, and that is that I think that one of the ways that he presents Malta as very different than himself is um, that Malta, as we said before, does not have a wife and child that he is avoiding but also would not do something just because he thinks that it would give him a feeling of reality if he did it. You know, that he has this childhood sense of like, if I put on this coat, I start to do the things that a person who wears this uniform would do. Um, And I'm self-consciously aware of that, but he isn't still that person as an adult, that he doesn't have a sense that he's choosing to examine Paris and all its grossness because he wants to have an experience like Baudelaire and write like Baudelaire for authenticity's sake, you know, that that it's like an extra layer of self-consciousness that, um, that Rilke had that Malta does not have. Does that seem right to you? I think that, that, um, that is one of the things that makes me read the final thing about um, the prodigal son, um, the the retelling of the story of the prodigal son as this person who who finds being loved unbearable. Um, It um, both sort of like nakedly confessional and personal and also um, like he's, looking to his experiences of empathy and his experiences of literature to give him a sense of personhood and to give his experiences weight that they otherwise feel too flimsy. Does that seem right? Like he's talking about what he's reading, but that's because that feels more real to him than reality. I think as, um, as a, poet and prose writer who like gets really sick of myself a lot of the yeah. time <laughs> often, <laughs> often when I'm writing about other people or books or whatever <laughs> it's just like a, another screen to project my shit on and I think that's how I read in, in particular because you know again I, I read this like when I read it in full I read it like a year and a half ago so a lot of it kind of drops away and the parts you remember the most you remember. And I remember really liking the end, but I had totally forgotten there was like a long thing about the prodigal son. 
And so when I was just flipping through it today, like there were lines that I remembered really strongly, but I didn't remember that they were part of the prodigal son part. Like the line that, um, and I know John really likes this line too. What poet has the eloquence to reconcile the length of those days with the brevity of life? Um, which is like, you know, very an adult thinking back on childhood kind of thing. Like, yeah, just remembering how much longer time felt then. Like, it's like you still have that measuring stick. It just doesn't work for days anymore. Yeah. But he was talking about the prodigal son. Um, but that would apply equally well, of course, to you know, older Malta and younger Malta, but it's almost, it feels to me almost like he just like got sick of talking about, you know, his childhood or this character's childhood. <laughs> I was like, how, how can I, how can I triangulate things a little bit to like keep you interested and to keep myself, the writer, interested? Yeah, I just found it like very affecting and also very relatable. The feeling that like he can only really sort of even see his own experiences through this lens mm-hmm. that that that's like the feeling that he won't describe is the feeling of like absentness inside his own life. Mm. I don't know. I, I found it like, I just reread the prodigal son part now. And just cause I was thinking about that. He um, had had trouble writing it apparently. And then when his friend uh, Paula Becker died in childbirth, then he wrote more of it. And there's a lot of stuff about pregnant women and death in it. And the one thing there isn't is like, you know, friendship um, in the sort of intimate sense of like another character who um, there's, you know, there's the mother sort of, but there aren't really other characters other than Malta himself that are drawn as sort of separate from him as like separate consciousnesses that, that weigh as much as his own, um, which is it's such a lonely, it's a lonely book, really. It is, just yeah. like it's, it's a lot. Rilke had a lot of friends, or he had a lot of friends, <laughs> but he had like tons of correspondence. He wrote letters, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. And when you read the letters, it truly seemed like he had close personal relationships with people oh yeah but yeah the malta seems like such a lonely solitary character yeah i think that he's really like describing one particular like element of his conscious experience it's not his whole self Mm -hmm. because you know if he is Mm -hmm. actually like that rattled and upset by his friend dying in childbirth that it, it really like changes his sort of artistic perspective for a long time and um and, you know, there's not that many books by men about pregnancy and childbirth as something that happens, like, to people, not just, like, a sort of a biological function. Um, and mm-hmm. in a way, I feel like this book, it just has that that interest in it um, of childbirth as being sort of dangerous. You know, it's, like he says the thing about, like, pregnant women all have a death because, like, as inside them because if you start someone's life you also give their death to the person and to the world um but there's also like you know it's dangerous to to give birth in these circumstances that information that biographical information it felt relevant to this book but it's also interesting how much he isn't saying that he isn't saying oh there's people i care about as individuals not just as you know faceless 
part of the mass of humanity around me that's both fascinating yeah. and kind of gross. Well, and it's interesting, um, the the book's original title or its subtitle or something like that is The Journal of My Other Self. Yes. Um, yes. And, I, and I, it is just considering, you know, what we've been talking about, about the sort of um, uh, what the Venn diagram looks like between, you know, um, Rilke and uh, Malta. Um, it, it's interesting to I think you can only speculate, um, you know, not not being Rilke ourselves, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> you can only speculate on on how he conceptualized, you know, in what way Malta was his other self. Right. Um, because, because clearly Malta has um, aspects of, of Rilke's personality and, you know, all of his incredible um, powers of observation and his sensibility. Like it, it's easy to as you're reading it, it, if you've read a lot of Rilke, it does feel like Rilke is talking to you the whole time. Yeah. Um, but it also clearly isn't Rilke. And 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 maybe um, I mean, no doubt Rilke experience loneliness in a certain way, but he didn't seem like he was lonely in the way that um, Malta was. I think that's a really good point to bring up that he does not seem to have any friends that really aren't other characters other than remembered characters in the book, if I recall correctly. Um, and um, and, and maybe in, in Malta's case, that's what gives him the power to sort of just like conjure these figures into like really vivid life just from his reading, um, maybe because he isn't, interacting with um flesh and blood humans very often at that point in the book um but yeah um i think it's interesting to think about but also unanswerable uh the question of um uh in what sense was malta rilke's other self yeah i, I think um again and this is a, a wolf thing you know how she talked about like party consciousness and fraught consciousness um she was very conscious of a journal being like a projection, like this sort of how how it went to seem to other people. I think that she is she knew people would read her journals after she died because she read a lot of writers' journals. Um, and you know, Sontag was the same. Like she clearly knew that people would read her journals. Kafka didn't, but <laughs> um. I mean, I, I don't know. Unless he, maybe I don't know. Maybe he didn't really believe that his friend would burn his his writings. Who knows? Um, but it was this this creation, like, but not just of a of a of a self that you're presenting to other people, but that you're presenting to yourself to read later. Like, you know, she would talk about like, oh, I I, I look forward to like reading these when I'm old. Um, like, I'm I'm putting this here for old V. She wrote. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um so just that like you know just if you think of yourself as like the self writing in the notebook today this tog then there's going to be another tog and another self tomorrow as it like creates all these layers um and yeah i find that i find that very beautiful and i'm i'm trying to remember i think it was kafka who wrote in his notebooks that like he wrote them so that he would believe in the future, like, oh, this hand wrote this. Again, the hand, like, it's evidence of the hand. It's your handwriting. And so you believe, like, oh, myself must be real. It's out there in the world. It's not just in my head. It's this. Right. Like, or like Keats with uh, this living hand now warm and capable, right? Which uh -huh. is 
that sort of reaching across time, but also in a uh, in an overtly uncanny way. Um, I think this what this also made me think of um, just in terms of um, the journal form and what it means to write a sort of a notebook style novel, write a, a tog book roman, um, but call it the journal of my other self. Um, and I guess that made me think of uh, Pessoa and all of Pessoa's um, heteronyms. Um, and so maybe the, one way of conceptualizing this is to think of Malta as one of Rilke's heteronyms. Um, and in a way, it'd be interesting to read this book side by side with um, the Book of Disquiet. I don't know if either of you have read Pessoa's The Book of Disquiet. Um, only, only parts of it. I never read the whole thing. But yeah, that's a great it's a great book to bring in. It's a very, yeah, it's a very similar kind of book, but Pessoa, who I think is great, I really like, I really love it. Um, but it's a very different kind of sensibility. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a similar sort of, you know, notebook style, um, autobiographical sounding book, and the character clearly resembles Pessoa in certain ways, and in certain ways clearly um, does not, and and, and is fictional. Um, is a sort of like semi-fictional persona. And of course, he was famous for creating, um, you know, lots of such uh, personae um, and, you know, writing collections of poetry as them, um, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah, I, uh, something that I find, you know, kind of very moving about this this being Rocco's only novel and just, I know that he wrote about it in, in letters and so forth and maybe in his journals, um, that he like he really wanted to write a novel. And it's like... <laughs> I think, you know, for poets, there's this, there's often this sense that like you can't not write poetry. It just like comes out and it might not always come out exactly when you want it, but when it does, it just comes like in a rush, often all at once. And I know like a lot of the Duino elegies were written like in a big rush. Like many of the really most epic ones were just in the course of a few days. Um, but he really had to struggle, as you alluded to earlier, Catherine, with this with this novel it took a long time to write and it really it really was like a grind yeah, yeah. <laughs> just it's just not the same um it's it's I think it's hard for poets to write novels in part because they're such um like monks of the small and <laughs> it makes you into kind of a perfectionist and it's really hard to deal with the whole mess of a text that's like you know 50 to 100,000 words um and it just gets away with you you can't hold it all in your mind at once and in some ways that's very permissive and forgiving and allows you to put all of your life inside it um but it's also like kind of you know terrifying and horrible that's interesting because that's the that's the thing that I that I like about novels uh, that um I I I only want to write something that's bigger than my mind, you know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like it's the only thing that's appealing is, um, is if I can't hold the whole thing in my mind at once. Um, and I don't know why that is. It just seems like inherently good. No, I agree. Cause I, I've been reading a lot of short poems recently and I often think they're so short that they are too, too able to it's not, it's not even like in your mind it's like you can see them with your whole eye all at once like it's just there's all the words i can't forget them like like poems that you can't help but memorize yeah yeah are sort of too short um 
like I want, because a poem can be shorter and still escape your mind in a way. Um, So it's like, that's, that's what I want. I want a poem to go just over that like event horizon where I can't (laughs) see the edges anymore. (laughs) Um, Well, I would say that this book, absolutely. um, I mean, I've obviously read it now a lot of times um, as a teenager and as an adult. And um, it always surprises me. I always find something I didn't remember in it. Oh yeah, so rich, it's it's so, so rich. beautiful. Yeah, I was like, I was, getting, I was getting like upset about it. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'm like, I was like mad that I wasn't just like reading it for the first time again, you know? Because <laughs> it's like, it's it's harder to to like go back. Like you, it's like you want to enter the house through the door and explore the whole house again. Whereas I was just kind of like looking at photographs or whatever. Oh, it's just so good. All right. That's the end of our episode on Rilke. Thank you to Elisa and Mike and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from listeners. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter, or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next month. <laughs>